Hi, Pastor Mike Fabares here. In August 2024, you're invited to join me on a seven-day cruise to Alaska. Delve into God's Word while taking in the rugged beauty of the Alaskan coast. Visit focalpointministries.org slash Alaska. Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. Think about the fact that God is a God that cannot be not only localized in a particular place, He cannot be domesticated. He cannot be your servant. He cannot be your life coach. He cannot be something smaller than he is. And because that's our tendency, we just need to constantly recalibrate and retune our minds to say, how great is the great God that we say we serve? Do we serve him as though he is that great God? You've heard the saying, you can't keep God in a box. But for generations, that's precisely what Israel's religious leaders did. In fact, they jealously guarded the temple to maintain proprietary control over this holy location. So is that where God really lived? Well, today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares explains why God used to affiliate with specific locations and why we must affirm God's infinite transcendence today. I'm your host, Dave Drewey. And now here's Pastor Mike with a message called The Places of Worship for Israel. I don't mean to insult you, but I think our brains are like a Nerf ball. Speak for yourself, Pastor Mike. Well, I am. I am speaking for myself. I, I, I know I'd like to think that my brain is like a supercomputer, or for the sake of this comparison, maybe like a, a lump of modeling clay. And when my mind encounters truth, no matter how hard that edge might be, my, my mind adjusts and it, it adopts that and embraces that and then it maintains its shape and it remembers and it will act accordingly from that point on. I like to think that, but of course that's not the case. It's more like a Nerf ball. I, I have encounters with the truth and I see the facts and my mind, it does, it adjusts. But once I'm done with that truth encounter, it seems my mind, probably like yours, starts to tend to go back to the shape it was before. It, it retracts. It gets back to thinking more familiar thoughts, particularly in our theology. When we think about God, we can encounter the hard edge of truth that God has revealed about himself in a particular area of who he is or what he expects. And, and I'll say, well, that's true. And I, I, I'd like to embrace that. I know it's what God teaches. And then I, I kind of get back to more familiar, more comfortable thoughts about God. That's a tragic thing, and it's actually a costly thing, as Tozer reminded us six decades ago now when he said that when we have a low view of God, we entertain that low view of God, it is the cause of a hundred lesser evils among us. In other words, when we don't think rightly about God, when our view of God is deficient, it may not be that we have not been exposed to good biblical truth, it's just that we have those encounters, like in the Old Testament, Israel had those encounters, and as Psalm 50 says, they, uh, they tend to go back to thinking about God that's uh, a God that's more like them. And Tozer said, when you do that, uh, there's all kinds of other deficient things that start to happen in your life. Bad theology is going to lead to a, a bad Christian life. Deficient theology is going to lead to a, a deficient way to go about thinking and acting and valuing and prioritizing. We've been studying Stephen's response to this council, this Sanhedrin that had arrested his pastor and 
had turned Christ over to be crucified not many months ago. And he is here on trial defending his Christianity. And I would suggest to you that the problem is that the Sanhedrin, these leaders of Israel, had a deficient view of God. A deficient view of God that when the culmination of all that they had studied in the Old Testament came right before them, they failed to see, as Paul put it, the, the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. They could not see the glory of God and the gospel because they, they didn't think rightly about God. As a matter of fact, one of their concerns in the discussion that we saw in the accusations towards Stephen in Acts chapter 6, verse 13, was that they were really concerned about what he thought about the temple. Of course, Stephen was going to defer to what Christ thought about the temple, and Christ, of course, he submitted himself to the regulations of the temple. His parents did. When a leopard was cleansed, he said, go and show yourself to the priest. I mean, it was all about the fact that whatever God had set up regarding that temple, certainly Christ affirmed it. But he did speak about the time that was coming when it would be destroyed. And it was clear, even that he forecasted in his teaching, as he talked to the woman at the well, you might remember, and she was concerned about whether the temple in, at Mount Gerizim, the Samaritan center of worship, or Jerusalem, he said, I know that's the debate, and she brought that up as a theological diversion. And he says, you know what God is looking for, a time is coming, and it now is, where we're looking for people that worship God in spirit and in truth. And that's hard because that shift from that very tactile, that sensory, even olfactory experience of walking into the temple is now going to be replaced by something that is without that means of worship. And that was really hard for the gatekeepers of the Temple Mount, the Sanhedrin, and all that were watching as Stephen stood there trying to defend the fact that he wasn't blaspheming Moses and he wasn't blaspheming God but let's look at these words of Stephen as he responds to the charge and see if we can be careful to have his perspective and not those of his accusers. He says in verse 44, follow along as I read it for you, Acts 7, 44, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. Now, it's called by many things, right? The tabernacle, the tent of meeting, the tent of testimony. This is the way the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament like to refer to it, the tent of witness. And we'll talk about all that that means, but the idea of God certainly bearing witness to the people, particularly by the tablets that were in the box, the Ark of the Covenant. Just as, and it was there, and it was there because God said it should be there, because just as God spoke to Moses and directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Well, it was portable. That's why it can move around in the wilderness wanderings for 40 years. And it says in verse 45 that our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. Now, that's important because we've always talked about throughout this whole discussion, as Peter is saying, look at the mobility of God. He's showing up in his glory in Mesopotamia, in Haran, in, in Egypt, all these different places. And now we have this portable worship center. They're there in the heart of it in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin are, and they're trying to care and, and concern themselves with guarding that. And this is all about the place where God's glory is. And you're speaking as though it's unnecessary. And they get the implications of the fact that in some ways, as the book of Hebrews says, it's going to become uh, an obsolete kind of, 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 of mechanism completely when it's destroyed by the Romans. But it was already from the time of Christ's death made obsolete by the death of Christ. And they're concerned about it. And he says, look, it didn't even enter into the promised land until Joshua brought it in after all the work and the descriptions of God's work throughout biblical history in the Old Testament. And so it was in a tent, different places, Nob, Gibeah, 
all these places where this went around till David finally brought it into Jerusalem and he wanted to build a temple. So it was until the days of David who found favor, verse 46, in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. That sounds interesting. Like we're gonna find a little house here for God. I mean, that's at least how it reads here, but we know that was not his theology. It had become the theology of those who were guarding the temple mount in the Sanhedrin, as we'll see. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. You might remember David wanted to build that, but God said, no, you're a warrior, you're a man of blood, you've killed a lot of people, I want a man of peace to build it. So Solomon, whose name even reflects that, is going to construct that temple. We know it is Solomon's temple, right? In, in, in the 10th century BC, he builds that. Now he's going to say all of that, right? You're concerned about the house. Of course, there was a house that was constructed by Solomon, preceded by the tabernacle that was a, a portable worship center with the Ark of the Covenant there and the tablets of the Ten Commandments in it. Yet he, rem he reminds them, speaking of maintaining a high view of God, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, now he's going to quote Isaiah 66, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? Okay, now, if you ask the Sanhedrin, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the scribes, hey, um, do you think God lives in that building over your shoulder? They'd say, well, no, we, we know it doesn't. But you do realize that the focus of the Israelites at the particular time that Jesus is walking there on the Temple Mount, he says, this is not the, it's not what it's supposed to be. You are governing this Temple Mount and you're administrating the activities on it in a way that uh, is not in keeping with God's intention. Right? You've made it a, a house of robbers. Remember when he said that? I want it to be a house of prayer. And that's how it was established, right? This is a place where we would look to and we would pray. We would ask for God's forgiveness. We would ask for God to give us grace and favor. And it's become, you know, Costco for you guys. You're money changers there. And he tips over all those tables. That concern had moved from seeing it as a, just a, a reflection of the God, a symbolic reflection of the greatness of God on earth, a directive, a means to an end to connect with and fellowship with this God, they began to see it as an end in itself, which happened long before the days of Christ. You might remember Malachi chapter 1, where there was this sense in which everyone just saw this as a, a ritualistic practice. And at one point in chapter 1 of Malachi, God says, oh, I wish there were someone who just shut the doors of this place. They didn't understand the greatness of God, or what we might call the transcendence of God, that he certainly was not going to be not only localized, which they would say, well, we don't believe that, but he certainly was domesticated. You see that? There's an idea of them kind of fitting God into their lives. And that was the whole concern of Malachi chapter one. That was the last book of the Old Testament warning everyone before these 400 years of silence, do not minimize, do not localize, do not trivialize, do not domesticate the God who is. And that's a problem, a problem of their view of God. So let's just think about that statement regarding the nature and character of God, the bigness of God, to use those spatial analogies, the highness of God, the most high God. And let's just make sure that we don't do what those leaders of Israel did, that I certainly think the early church recognized, the greatness of God that found its greatest expression in the arrival of his son as not only our king, but as our redeemer. For taking notes, let's just summarize those last three verses with this phrase. We need to humbly affirm. Let's humbly affirm God's infinite transcendence. And that means that God is higher than you think he is. He's bigger than you think he is. And even, those, even though those are spatial analogies, I want you to understand what those mean. Think about the fact that God is a God that cannot be not only localized in a particular place. 
He cannot be domesticated. He cannot be your servant. He cannot be your life coach. He cannot be something smaller than he is. And because that's our tendency, we just need to constantly recalibrate and retune our minds to say, how great is the great God that we say we serve? Do we serve him as though he is that great God? And we talk about the greatness of God. I don't want you to miss that all of that reflects what we think about his attributes and what he does. Right? Here's, here's a verse for you to jot down. How about one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, Psalm 103. Psalm 103 reminds us that it's not just the, and these are spatial analogies, the transcendence of God as in terms of who he is, the nature of God. But when he expresses himself in whatever he does, Right? It, it, it's so much greater qualitatively than anything we could do. Here's the verse I was thinking of, Psalm 103, verse 11. It says, think of this spatial analogy, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love, his steadfast love, his faithful covenant love toward those who fear him. Okay, we're called to love because God is love. We're called to be holy because God is holy. We're called to be just because God is just. You're called to be righteous this week because God is a righteous God. But when we think about God, we need to think, not only is he so much bigger and so much more uh, uncontained than we like to think when we put God and our theology in our back pocket, it's everything that he does becomes this, this huge, qualitatively huge, this immense, I use the word infinite, this infinitely great expression of who he is. And, and I think that begins to really humble us and challenge us. If I said this week, did you love your wife? Did you love your kids? Did, did you do right in your work? Were you a man of integrity? Those are questions you think, okay, well, yeah, I think I'm hitting the mark. Well, as it says in Psalm 50, when we make God more like us, and we don't allow that view of a real lofty, expansive view of God to rule in our minds, we begin to think, well, sure, I'm doing pretty well at those things. We need to let our understanding of God be so expansive and so big, so qualitatively better than anything that we might see here on earth that our minds are constantly working at making this God the real perfect and holy, most high God that he is. Hard for us to put that into words without using analogies, but it's helpful for us to think about the fact that we should ask the question, how big is our God? How, how high and lofty is my view of God? When Solomon, and it might be worth jotting down for your study this week, 1 Kings chapter 8 is when Solomon gets to doing all of the temple construction that David had said in his heart to do. Matter of fact, David had, had sequestered the materials and got everything together, and then Solomon has it built, and he has this uh, prayer of dedication. might be worth looking at. Let's go there real quick. 1 Kings chapter 8. Drop, drop down to verse 12. Solomon is now thinking about the God that frankly, I think by the first century, and even by the fourth century BC, and I think every successive generation struggles with this, it, it had become much less than this. They could see, even as they did back in Samuel's day, that the Ark of the Covenant, this box in which the, the, the Ten Commandments were held, I mean, that's like our good luck term. If we got that, we got, we're okay. And, and the the Sanhedrin, the council could say, well, we, we're gatekeepers of this piece of real estate. We're okay. This is where God's favor is. And, and we're fine because we have it. And, and Solomon, even, for all that he does later in life that we would raise our eyebrow at and, and, and even condemn as, as, as godless and him wandering away from the truth, we, we see him here with really good theology about what's going on in, in the temple. Look at verse 12. Solomon said, the Lord has said he would dwell in thick darkness. Now, there's something here. There's a little 
double entendre. There's a little bit of, a, of, of, of two things we should see. We, we should think about the God, the invisible God, the God that you cannot see, where he says, you shouldn't represent me in any form. Remember we talked about that when we talked about the golden calf here recently? There's a God that is, and he is a God that is not to be represented by these creatures or these images because uh, he, he can't be reduced to any of that. As a matter of fact, when we think of the New Testament, 1 Timothy 4, he dwells in unapproachable light. There's something about the expansiveness and the distance and the otherness of God without going too far to where we start to affect our thinking about truth that we can't know him. Well, we can know him because he's revealed himself, but that God is so different, holy, that's what it means, right? He's, he's not like us. And in that distance, in that that disconnect from us, we have to think, okay, there is something that so is, is so uncontained that I, I, can't, I can't reduce him to that. And, and that's the distance picture of, of God. Of course, he's here as well, but then we have that picture of an actual cloud. Well, you had it, first of all, as they wandered through the wilderness, this cloud by day and pillar of fire by night, but then there was this cloud outside of the Bible. They talked about the Shekinah glory of God, but the idea of this cloud that came and rested there in the Holy of Holies, this 30 by 30 foot square room within the tent and later in the temple. And that place was a place where this visible manifestation of God's presence was, at least the presence, some representative symbolic presence of God in this, in this cloud. He says, the Lord has said, I will dwell in thick darkness. But he says here, verse 13, but I indeed have I've built, a, I've built you an exalted house. I mean, it's the best building that Israel had ever built a place for you to dwell in forever. Also, oh, see there, he did believe in a domesticated God. No, that, that's not true. As a matter of fact, Solomon says, I stood before the altar, verse 22, in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands toward heaven, right? He knows, he's looking up, he's thinking like we're taught to think and pray, as Jesus said, our Father who art in heaven, right? And then hallowed be your name. Great, and that's the word holy. You're different, you're out there, you're, you're distinct from us, you're set apart from us. And he said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or in earth beneath, right? There's no one like you, uh, incomparable. Keeping covenant, you always are faithful to your promises, showing steadfast love, faithful love. You're loyal to what you say you're gonna do and to your people, to your servants who walk before you with all of their heart. And he goes on to talk about the promises that were kept to David, his father. Let's get down to the core of it, verse 27. He says, now listen, I built this house and he said earlier you're gonna dwell in forever. Well, we know that can't mean that he thinks he's going to contain God in this back room. God will, will, will God indeed, he asks a rhetorical question, dwell on the earth? No, of course not. I think the Sanhedrin would probably say, well, we believe that too, but they weren't living like it. Behold, the heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. Right? How much less this house I built? Now, it's the most majestic house ever built in Israel, but he's saying, I know you don't, you, you don't live here. You're not localized here. Yet, here's the whole point. Have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. He's talking about himself in the third person. Oh, Lord, my God, listen to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you've said my, here it is, this adjustment, my name shall be there, right? This representation of God's greatness, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place, right? And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place, right? He knows where God is. And we're talking about some kind of a presence of God cannot be localized, cannot be domesticated, can't put it, be put in the back room. And when you hear, forgive. And he goes on to talk about that. We're, we're really looking to you knowing we've got a problem. We've got a problem. And this little manifestation of the glory of God in this room, you need to see it, it is bookended in biblical history between two eras, two epics, 
that are completely different than everything in between. The temple, as it's laid out here in the 14th century BC, is 15th century, as Moses is coming out of Egypt, is some kind of symbolic representation of the glory of God, and it looks like something that we learned about in Genesis 1 and 2. A garden called Eden. And in Eden, we saw God in some strange description walking with Adam and Eve. How weird is that? Talking and having fellowship and everything is harmonious. It has a sense of this perfection of God living with us and us living with him. And then you look at the end of the Bible, Revelations 20, 21 and 22. And you see this whole description again of God living with people. And now it says, as heaven opens up, here comes this new city that's the same dimensional proportions as the holy of holies. It's coming down out of heaven. Well, John had already said, I don't see a temple here. Where's the temple? We don't have a temple. Why? Because it says now the dwelling place of God is among men. So God now brings this whole reality down to this thing called the new earth and God's presence is there. And you have this sense in which God is really dwelling there. And before you had here in the garden, God at least dwelling in fellowship and in harmony with Adam and Eve. Well, everything in between, everything in between Genesis 3 and Revelation 19 is this period of time that you could really put over the top of that, Isaiah 59, 2. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. What happens in the, in the garden when they're kicked out of the garden? What does God do? Think back, Sunday school grads. He puts some, uh, some sentries at the front, actually to the east, to the east opening of the garden so they wouldn't go back in. He puts two cherubim, remember that? And he has, gives them flaming swords, so don't come back in. It is interesting, by the way, a lot of emphasis on the direction. The direction is east. They're kicked out to the east. Well, when God gives instructions to Moses to build this temple, he says, I want the opening to be coming in from the east. And I don't want you to see any longer these angels, at least in the symbolic representation, with flaming swords keeping you out. As a matter of fact, there are cherubim. Remember the cherubim that are crafted by gold on the top of the Ark of the Covenant? They're not looking out, guarding people. As a matter of fact, you remember the descriptions. They're turned inward toward the box. It's almost like at least an inferred invitation, like, yeah, come on in. Well, that was done with a lot of ritual and a lot of shedding of blood. You couldn't even be in the room unless you were the high priest and only one day a year. But you had this symbolic reminder that the separations because of our sin, this darkness between Genesis 3 and Revelation 19, could be symbolically represented in this box, but it's only a reminder of this connection to a God and we can't wait to get to a place when the dwelling place of God is among men. That's why we constantly have been saying, right, from this pulpit, it is not about the here and now, it's about the then and there. A lot of good things about the Christian life, a lot to do, a lot of mission, a lot of stuff, but the ultimate reality is when, as Paul said, we no longer see dimly through this glass, this foggy picture, but when we see him what? Do you know the praise? face-to-face, right? We can't wait for that. You're listening to Pastor Mike Fabares and the start of a new message called The Places of Worship for Israel here on Focal Point. And if you've missed any of the previous messages in our current series called Gospel Lessons from the Old Testament, you can easily catch up online at focalpointradio.org. And if you're on the go, you can take Focal Point with you anywhere, anytime. Find links to connect with us on social media or on our mobile app at focalpointradio.org. And when you're on our website, look for the banner to find out about Focal Point's upcoming Alaskan cruise in August 2024. So don't wait to book your spot online today at focalpointradio.org.
Well, we're glad you've joined us here on Focal Point. We're especially grateful for faithful friends like you who share our desire to reach the world with the truth of God's Word. And to keep this ministry going strong, we need your support. So please consider making a generous donation to support this ministry today when you call 888-320-5885. That's 888-320-5885. Or go online to focalpointradio.org. To say thanks for your gift, Pastor Mike has selected an excellent book to go along with our current series titled The Most Misused Stories in the Bible, Surprising Ways Popular Bible Stories Are Misunderstood by Eric Bargerhoff. Request your copy when you call to donate. 888-320-5885 is our number, or go online to focalpointradio.org. Well, election season is heating up, so tomorrow Pastor Mike is going to address your questions about taxes, government spending policy, and what the Bible has to say about these controversial topics. I'm your host, Dave Drewy, inviting you to join us for a rousing edition of Ask Pastor Mike, Friday on Focal Point. Pastor Mike here. You know, we live in a culture where every point of view demands affirmation. It'd be easy to tell people what they want to hear. But we must teach the Bible accurately, unapologetically, and without compromising and without editing it. God's Word is truth. If you want to send me a question, I encourage you to get in touch with us at focalpointradio.org. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.